and welcome to another edition of the Bond Daft Podcast. Stephen Barry here, joined as usual with my Bond aficionados, Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Steve McCall. A very warm good afternoon to you all. And yourself, and Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, Mr. Barry. And we are here for the 16th James Bond film, License to Kill. We are going to, as usual, do a preamble talking about the film's sort of main talking points before watching it, and then we'll go and watch the film, come back to discuss in spoilerific detail. Before we do that, let's have a very quick catch up on how her, our week has been since our last podcast. How is the COVID-19 lockdown treating you all? Gordon, let's start with you. Yeah, so I'm now working from home, which can't complain about, enjoying the home comforts. Nice to fit in a couple of movies while I was there in the middle, and Man with the Golden Gun, nice to return to. And yeah, I've just been mostly working, to be honest. Uh, listened to quite a lot of music, a couple of bits, uh, the nice Bond soundtracks that the films we've done. And yeah, trying to keep myself sane. I'm trying to be more of a glass half full person these days and just try to embrace this. Uh, it was interesting going back to Man with the Golden Gun. And actually, um, I still really like it, but I think maybe after the recent ones we saw, you can see how over the top some of it is. Uh, you see some of the silliness I maybe didn't see before. I think because I'm now in a living daylights and food eyes only mindset, but ah, still enjoy that, but doing good. Okay. Fran, how are you doing? Um, just the exact same as all the other times, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> you just want me to skip over you from now on? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, fine, I guess. Yeah, um, probably uh, variations of the same pros and cons as everyone else here i think like it's nice to have some time really bored blah blah blah. you know just this kind of same yeah. same thing really yeah steve how you doing uh so yeah i've been back at work full time which has been almost a return to relative normality it's just it's almost it's you know when you have a very realistic dream and it's like everything is the same but it's not quite the same like things you recognize places but they seem completely different so work for example i recognize that i walk into the office and it's my work but it's completely empty and i'm sat at the other end of the room from everyone else for social distancing reasons so it's it's like living in a kind of bizarre dreamlike state of real life at the moment which is still taking a bit of getting used to but yeah. I suppose at least getting to travel back and forth and go to work and have that little bit of relative normality is probably kind of helping. Um, not being completely stuck down in the same house is definitely some kind of benefit. But it's been good. Okay. Uh, yeah, myself uh, has been fine. Uh, I've found ways to enjoy it. I am currently on furlough from my place of employment, so I have yeah been able to use the time editing some podcasts still the backlog is there but i'm hoping to do for your eyes only soon this that'll be ready by sunday uh, is my deadline and yeah i'm, I'm doing other things i'm watching bond bonus features catching up i was watching moonraker this yesterday that was fun and just generally uh keeping fit i've mostly been going cycles every day and doing a sort of weights and other things like that we circuit that i've created so just to try and keep 
active of some sort. Uh, yeah, so otherwise, that's the check-in. We're all doing fine. We're all relatively sane. Uh, varying degrees, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that, the dream thing got me thinking there, um, Steve, what you were saying about um, the realities actually feeling like a dream. I've not really been dreaming so much recently. I don't I love having a dream. I don't know if you've ever had one where, you, you know, people say, oh, you need to, this saying, you pinch yourself to know something's real. I've had dreams where they seem so far-fetched, and in the middle of the dream, I've actually pinched myself and thinking, wake up, and then I don't wake up, and I'm still in the dream, like, but I'm pinching myself. This seems crazy. It's like, you know, Moonraker-style plot out of heightened reality dreams. <laughs> I'm missing those dreams, though. I've not been dreaming <laughs> Some of the dreams you've told us about, they just sound mad. Maybe it's maybe it's for the best. Yes, yeah. <laughs> some of the dreams I have are absolutely crazy. It's weird. I must have changed my diet or something. It's just somehow, I don't know, I was maybe too much cheese or something like that. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> let's uh, let's bring it back to, to the, the mission at hand. License to Kill, the final, sadly, film for Timothy Dalton. His very short stint as Bond, obviously double of what George Lacey did, but uh, still... A very short stint. I think we should have at least got another film out of him, but yeah. I I have strong memories of License to Kill. For some reason, when I'm reading into it, it seems a bit mixed, the reaction on the film. So I'm not sure if it was at the time they weren't ready for a really... Because this is a bit of a grittier film, even more so than The Living Daylights. But I remember really liking this film. Um, Gordon, you want to give us some sort of insight into some of the main talking points for this film before we watch it? Plots and things like that. Yeah, um, I love this film. Uh, I'll keep the plot. Um, it is a relatively simple plot anyway, and without being too spoilerific, um, I'll say uh, Bond quits MI6. Bond pursues uh, a mission of personal vengeance and goes off on his own against orders to pursue a drug baron. And it's that's really all I can say about it at the moment. And it, as you said, very gritty. I think this film is pretty much the cat amongst the pigeons of all the Bond films. You could potentially say up to this point, this film and maybe On a Majesty's Secret Service really stick out as being, let's just say, different. This is a very, it feels very different, this Bond film, which is funny because it is, again, John Glenn directing and much of the same crew. It's, there's, a, there's a few other um, personnel um watersheds we can look at. I mean, that, this was the last one to involve Richard Maybaum as a writer, and I think he actually started, I'm sure it was back in Doctor No, maybe from Russia with Love, I think it was Doctor No, this is the last one he's involved with. I think he maybe, I'll need to check, I think he collaborated possibly with Michael Wilson. It's also, uh, well, it's the first one without a score from Mr. Barry. We have Michael Kamen providing the score this time. Oh, cool. Um, much of the same production staff at a $30 million budget, which I think, 32, I think, reportedly, yeah, which is similar to, yeah, similar to View to a Kill, but Living Daylight's thing was about 40, but, uh, oh, the other thing, now this, the whole film actually was shot in Latin America, I think mainly Mexico, there was nothing even in England, no Pinewood Studios, uh, they used a studio, I think, somewhere around Mexico City, and a lot of it just on location. This was a was that a tax thing, wasn't it? I don't know if that was the only reason. And Cubby Broccoli, that this was actually oh, and I'm completely missing the other. I was big about to say, yeah, this was yeah. <laughs> this is the last one to involve Cubby 
Andy Broccoli um, actually been um, having a hands-on. Not it was scaled down a bit. It was most by this point he'd passed a lot of his duties to his stepson Michael G. Wilson and his daughter Barbara. But he um, was on the set quite a bit. And this the last film that he actually was, and he I think when they were filming in South America, he had some sort of health scare, and I think he might get rushed to hospital and he kind of kept away during the latter parts of the filming. And there was all kinds of... There's a chase player in the film that you'll notice in the documentary, Steve. There was all... The, on some road that was haunted, and there was all kind of weird things happening in the production site. I think the production of this film was um, interrupted a lot, and there was a lot of problems. And there was also a lot of problems when it came out, and that it wasn't fully marked properly. It came out in the summer of 89, and it had to compete with one of the Lethal Weapon films. That In fact, that might not be correct. It came out in uh, 89. Uh, it came out in the same summer as the original Batman film, Tim Burton's yeah. Batman, as well as, and, I think, Lethal Weapon 2 and yeah, a few other. Right. It was massively... There was a massively competitive summer for the big action films, and I think that kind of lost some revenue from that, and um, because it is seen as one of the not it, it it made a fine amount, but it wasn't the same amounts that the Roger Moore era had been making, even some of the Sean Connery films. And the other reason I think is because this film is only James Bond film, at least until this point, it was a fifteen because of its yeah. its gritty, quite violent um, action. So they lost revenue as well from the fact that they were losing some of that that PG audience. That's yeah, it's another way that... in the sense that you wouldn't think on the face of it that Bond would be a family film in some ways, but it kind of became that I think with Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was something that you would take your you would go with your family. You would yeah. take everybody along, you know. Um, and I, I do reckon you know that's probably. I mean, if you cut families out of it, there's a lot of a, a, a guys that would probably only have gone to see it with their wife and kids. Do you know what I mean? That would have been, you know, if they that would have been the family choice, they're going to pick something else to go and see. Do you know what I mean? They might not have had the money to go and see three or four films that that month or whatever. You know, so yeah. it was originally reportedly going to be an 18 and they actually took out some stuff that <laughs> would have made. And I don't, I'm not quite so sh- sure why there was change and approach it i think indiana jones and the last crusade was another film that came out that summer that had to compete against and the other major change was until the the very last minute it was called license revoked that was the working title license revoked. Yeah, i don't know what you think but to me it doesn't have quite the same ring to it no. but it was it just sounds like a bureaucratic term. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, <laughs> Gordon, I don't know if you were going to say that, but the, the posters, I think some of the early release posters in other countries internationally still had license revoked on the poster, which caused confusion in the marketplace. But also in America, the, the, I think that specifically is a term that's used when you lose your driving license. So yeah. it kind of had this weird sort of like, yeah, <laughs> anticlimactic kind of feel to it, which it might have harmed some of the... the boss. Yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's a Bond true. film called like Breach of the Peace or something like that. Like something just <laughs> Bond Asbo. Yeah. yeah, I actually think License to Kill. Yeah, it's got a much better ring to it, and it's a, a very suitable title when when we see the context of the film. But I've just I've said so many times, I just really love this film, and I think to most people, Daylight's is the is Dalton's best. Uh, I'm more of a License to Kill man, and we'll we'll go into the reasons for that. Gordon. Later on, but I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. Yeah. I just wanted to quickly ask Gordon something, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember years ago reading about this whole haunted road 
I'm kind of curious to know just a wee tiny bit more about that. Like, like what was that all about again? Yeah. Well, on a big chase sequence later on, there was some stretch of road, and I think it again it might have been in Mexico, and there was several um, lorries involved in the chase, and apparently in the middle of the night they were moving of their own accord. There was one or two accidents during the chases, which just came out of nowhere. Um, there was claims in the documentary, a couple of crew members saw apparitions and ghosts. And the scariest thing ever is there's a photo of the production of an explosion and the flames in this still photo look like a giant hand. It's on the the documentary Inside License to Kill, which is which is on the, the special edition DVD. I don't know how much of it is really can be taken as it actually happens, but yeah, apparently this was it was all stretch of road. It was so dangerous that it wasn't a public road anymore. It was closed off and not really used, but they gave it to the production crew for this film because it looked so good. It was in such a dramatic location. As a Super Bond fan, how do you think Bond would deal with a paranormal enemy then? <laughs> well, well, Bond would win because Bond always wins because Bond's a <laughs> badass. But but remember when you said um, Baron Samadhi was sort of paranormal in a way. Yeah. Even I enjoyed you and Steve's discussion about Moonraker and Thunderball after you'd watched them. You you said that about Jaws with these apparitions and spy love it seems. Yeah, Bond would win. Bond could beat anyone. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, Steve, um, Steve Barry and myself <clears throat> have discussed a few times the idea of like mixing genres. So like with Star Wars, like say you had an expanded universe Star Wars story that was like a horror story or something like that. Like I always find it fascinating to imagine characters who normally deal with quite, with one particular circumstance having to deal with something else. It's quite an interesting idea. There's okay. some great films across genres, I was just going to say, and um, it would have been interesting for for example, if there actually had been a Tarantino Bond film, which was talked about around about the time Casino Royale came out, but um, this film really sticks out, but um, it's it's good sometimes to have a different director or different style. I mean, imagining still the same character, but um, but and I just played a different way is interesting. It'd be interesting having Tarantino direct. I mean, this film, the name would just be Motherfucking License to Kill if it was Tarantino. So, would yeah, it, 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 would, it would have to be an 18 at least. But, uh, yeah. Okay, um, we will now go and watch the film. Just or very quickly, I just noticed the films that it was competing against. It was Lethal Weapon 2, Ghostbusters 2, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, which obviously had Sean Connery and Batman. So that was a very busy summer for big blockbuster action movies in the late 80s. 89, obviously. We're talking about to cap off uh, the eighties. That was that was some summer. Yeah, this is the end of an era film. This is the end of the sort of era of Cubby Broccoli being a mainstay, as we've spoken about. John Glenn as director, Dalton Bond, Robert, Robert Brown. Brown is uh, yeah, so a lot of the the crew, I think, it, it moved and changed by the time they got to Goldeneye ninety five, six years later. So this really is the end of an era, and it'll be uh, it's a, it's I'm looking forward to seeing this this one again. Okay. We're now going to go and watch the film. We will come back and talk about License to Kill. Bye-bye. And we are back after having watched License to Kill. What do we think of this one, gents? Gordon, we'll start with you. Oh. your retake on this film? You did say previously yeah. this is one of your favourites. I can tell... That's not going to change. <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah, you'll not be surprised I enjoyed this latest viewing. It's probably in my, my top five of Bond films. I just, I love the, I love Dalton in this film. I love his, um, he's full of rage, the whole film. He's disobeying orders. He's going, he's going under the radar. He's, um, he quit him MI6. Um, I mean, to bring any potential listener up to speed, he goes on this vengeance mission because his um, colleague and friend Felix Leiter is brutally injured um, after a drug lord, Franz Sanchez, um, basically feeds him to a shark, kills his wife for putting him in jail, and Bond goes on a mission of vengeance. And um, he basically, Bond basically, his loyalty to, to Her Majesty's government is overridden by his loyalty to Leiter. And I just, I love the way that he turns the tables in Sanchez. He actually infiltrates his organisation and he gains his loyalty and he turns his whole organisation against him. He's not just, he's not just um, happy to kill Sanchez for vengeance, but he's happy. He wants to absolutely destroy his entire organization while he's there and uh yeah i just i just really enjoy it yeah yeah fran what was your uh take on this film when you watched it so i, I felt that it, it basically was the sort of the first film that addressed every complaint that i've had about bond so far so everything was everything from the writing to the, the characters um, there wasn't so much location hopping. The plot was believable. Um, Bond himself was was even more of a three D character than he's been. I just I, I think it was absolutely. It was as if someone had sat down. Like it was as if one of us had gone back in time with all the podcasts and sat down with the the people who made it and said, "Look, why don't you fix this ten or fifteen things?" And then they, they retroactively did it and and came up with this film. Do you know what I mean? It was it, it was amazing. They must have had a real sit-down before this film. They must have done that and, and gone through a lot of different reviews and like feedback, and, and it just felt kind of almost perfect, in a way. Okay, yeah. I loved yeah. it. I enjoyed every yeah. second of it. Steve, what about you? This felt, this felt almost cathartic. It's almost... I think I've been waiting for this film since Honor Majesties. We've been waiting for a vengeful Bond film. It's almost as though this is what Diamonds should have been. This was Bond out on the rage and doing everything he can and battering anyone in his way to get vengeance. In this case, obviously, it was for his best friend's wife who had been killed. So there were obviously the, the way it was sort of flashback to that was quite clever. So the setup was great. I properly enjoyed this. I've got barely any notes because, unlike other films, I was so hooked to this film. And I love that it was just a straightforward action film. It wasn't as Fran said, there was no location hopping to confuse us. The story was straightforward. You could follow it. I got a little bit confused when they suddenly introduced a televangelist meditation expert, but I finally got there in the end. <laughs> but beyond that, it was just so enjoyable. It got a bit silly towards the end with the explosion and the truck on, hold on, if it's an 18-wheeler truck, nine wheels on one side. Yeah, just, yeah. It got ridiculous towards the end, but I was smiling all the way through. It was ridiculous, but it was, I properly enjoyed that. Yes, uh, my take as well. I also completely agree with all three of you. Uh, this was a fantastic film, more or less from start to finish. The setup was fantastic. It was interesting seeing Bond in a wedding venue and being a sort of 
best best man and things like that. I like that. It was fresh and the believable villains. I, I thought they were believable, but also still menacing. Uh, they, that that factor did not go away. In fact, they were so realistic in a sense that this was essentially around the time of the sort of drug cartels and things like that, Escobar and things like that. Yeah. So there's something to be yeah. said for it's it's a little sort of eerie when it, these are these are villains that are actually real. Like you know, this is this isn't too far from what was going on around that time. Dalton's portrayal of Bond, fantastic. Still a continuation of the Living Daylights version. Um, a much more brutal side to the character. Uh, the film, in fact. Everything was brutal. There was blood from you know from people being um, battered. There was obviously horrific mauling. We'll go into the deaths of some of the characters. Uh, you know, it was visceral. And yeah, the the, the ending did get kind of. It didn't get like Roger Moore silly or, or Diamonds Are Forever cartoonish, but it got like a little kind of like eighties action movie kind of finale and excess of explosions and and action movie lines and things like that. It was a, but I didn't mind because. It fitted that time. It fitted the films that were came out about then. This is Bond being modernised again. And uh, yeah, yep, a thrilling, thrilling film. So, where do we start? <laughs> you know, no, start? Um, I was going to say, Robert Davi actually, he he uh, really went for method acting. He studied guys like what well, you mentioned, Steve Pablo Escobar, the who I think was the richest criminal in the world. And yeah. the sort of the biggest drug lord around from Colombia and he studied that character and based himself around it. I think Robert Davi playing Sanchez was was excellent and uh, especially the way he um everything was all about loyalty to him and Bond used that against him and made it look as though his own men were turning against him and he just totally um wrecked his entire organization. But the the thing is it was I mean I watched I don't know if you guys watched Narcos Yes, I was about to say is yeah. that you could see a lot of the that style of villain. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it was um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I I thought that the um, Sanchez was played very very well. Uh, I, I liked the fact that you because with um, uh, Narcos and um, God was Escobar Escobar is isn't it? So it's Pablo, Pablo Escobar, Escobar had a yeah. had depth to him. You know, there was a, a strain. There was a you, uh, you come, oh, there was a likableness to Pablo Escobar in amongst all of the <clears throat> all of the terrible stuff. It, it, it's almost like the anti-hero type of character, and I feel like there was a tiny. That obviously Sanchez wasn't likable. There wasn't enough time, but you but you could see that when he thought that Bond was his ally, he treated Bond very well, took care of him, you know, and and tried to help him recover and and all that kind of thing, and like trusted him with his his partner and all these different things, you know? So there was, and and I think that that was a big part of what um, was taken maybe from, from someone like Pablo Escobar in terms of doing method acting as, as well as the writing. Cause I think it was played very well. It was believable. I could really buy it. You know, uh, I thought, I thought, um, what, who was it that played Sanchez again? It was um, Robert Davi. Yeah. Yeah. was great. I thought he was really good. And I, I liked the fact that he, like I could believe that he, um, like, towards the end of the film, for a lot of other villains, it seems absurd, you know? But he puts the, like, he murders someone because he thinks they're going to, they've, they've put money out on him for a hit, and he does it in a very cruel and brutal way, but it's believable, the rage. Then later on as well, when he's, um, when there's this kind of fight to the death between him and Bond, and it's going on and on and on, and he's losing more and more money, you can tell it's about something else. Do you know what I mean? There's a, a kind of a, 
I don't know quite how to describe it, but it's believable, and it reminded me of Pablo Escobar. Like, he would burn it all to the ground sometimes. I feel, yeah, as well, we're just waiting for that final confrontation between Bond and Sanchez, for Sanchez to know what it was really about. It was very brief, but the way Bond uh, showed him the, the lighter, you hoped there was just enough, like, two seconds there for Sanchez to think, oh, this is Felix Leiter's friend. It's all about this. Yeah. Okay, on, on, we'll stay on and Sanchez then. Uh, we'll start with the villains then. Uh, as a villain, obviously, lower-key, uh, sort of non-world-dominating plot. It was uh, believable, in a sense, which is, like I said before, it, it, there's something quite scary about that because these guys, these henchmen, you, you know, you've questioned it so many times on previous Bond films where you could, how how could you believe that these henchmen would be called up for Stromberg? And how did they actually convince them all and, and Drax and things like that to, to leave their 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 planet in Drax's case? And uh, yeah, you know, but you know, it was all about money with San. Well, not money specifically for Sanchez, but these were obviously just these are thugs brought in, and money was the main motiva- motivator. Uh, and that's how it was with the cartels and things like that. That's how these guys got power, and that's how. They were able to turn, you know, corrupted cops and and sort of all the sort of main institutions that would normally be able to suppress them. So well, you had you had um, that young was it Truman Lodge, the financial advisor, the young guy, yeah. right? He, yeah. But you could tell there was something that reminded me of Breaking Bad about this as well because in Breaking Bad, like Walter White was sort of dazzled by the equipment and the science behind it all, like when he was offered. Um, to work uh, work with Gus Fring, and that uh, I, I got a sense of that from this financial advisor as well. That you know he was there for that for that, but he also kind of respected the the plant that they'd built, like the big kind of facility that they built, um, put all this money into for to produce the drugs and hide the drugs and all, which was very clever. It was it was very very clever. Um, and the televangelist guy, you could tell he was completely different. He was in it for the money. And he didn't give a shit. Do you know what well, I, mean? I got the feeling uh, the other character was also in it for the money. He was, he seen himself as a businessman. I think. Uh, yeah, he was but all he was about a, but he making was, clients and things. Yeah, but he was practically crying at the end and getting upset, and and was with um, Sanchez right up to the last second. Whereas the televangelist just ran away. So there's yeah, like a yeah. spectrum of henchmen there. Do you know what I mean? I, I did like. I, I liked that. I liked the guy um, as well, Del Toro's character. Oh, uh, Dario. Yeah. Like the ex um Contras guy. He was very breaking bad, you know. Um yeah. I, I, again, fantastically played by a very young and very handsome Del Toro. I know. Uh, I think this is one of his first films. Yeah, but he did great. He, he came across as that cold, psychopathic yeah. guy, you know. So great, just great. Again, all of them slightly different to each other with different motivations. Brilliant. Yeah, same. Yeah, I like I like the variety of the different types of villains. There was a plentiful amount of villains from the sort of lower scale henchmen, the sort of security for for uh, Sanchez, as well as your Dario, you know, and and obviously the the televangelist playing the guy that ran that fish company, like the the mm-hmm. the, the the company that was kind of the middlemen. He was yeah, some, he was like he was almost he wasn't a henchman. He was almost like a kind of a second tier kind of bad big bad, wasn't he? He was like a kind of one down from Sanchez. Is this yeah. Milton Crest? You mean the guy who owned, the, who yeah. was in it more or less the first? Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because you mentioned Anthony Zerb, who played him, was also in one or two Star Trek movies. See the character. Although this film 
was actually, it wasn't directly based in a book. It was pretty much original. It was one or two things taken from the Fleming stories or short stories. And the character of Milton Crest was in a short story called The Hildebrand Rarity. But it was a bit different. He owned a boat. And he, I think he was just a sort of rich businessman. But he was a drunk, which was portrayed in the film yeah. somewhat as well. Another element which was taken from books was actually in the novel live and let die so this is a very small segment of license to kill but in the novel live and let die lighter got his leg half bitten off by a shark and Uh they translated that into the film and he also had a note he was found with a note on him still alive he disagreed with something that ate him and that was um that was one of the you know in amongst it been in many ways a genetic action film that was one of the classic bond elements that get transferred through yeah i like that yeah, so a, a wealth of villains. If you like your villains in films, then this film had a, a fantastic array of different types of villains. And that was one of the things that really drew me as well as, you know, all the other things I could say that I loved about the film. So, you know, I wouldn't, you could not say that Sanchez wasn't a memorable villain. I think he will be, he's never, I don't think he's like compared to Goldfinger and things like that, but he's a different type of villain. And I think it really worked for this film. Steve, did you did you find the villains captivating? I completely agree with all of the above. To be honest, the villains were fantastic. Just, I think these are probably. I mean, overall, it's probably the most believable film we've seen so far, and the villains played a huge part in that. You could see. You're absolutely right. The Pablo Escobar comparisons are spot on. I just, I, I was enthralled by it because it's like something that could happen. It wasn't. You'd like you say there was no megalomaniac in there. It was all your sort of how you imagine the sort of high end drug barons and stuff all actually operate. So it was a really interesting sort of insight into into that life. And Sanchez was brilliant, just the whole way through, menacing, excellent, really enjoyed yeah. him. Yeah, you always felt that Bond was never really safe around him. Like I always got the feeling, even when he was being treated nicely, that at any moment, you know, it's just, it's gangsters. It's like a mafia film in those kind of ways where your friends close type thing. It's uh, I think that that adds an element of menace throughout the entire and film. watching it like, it keeps you on edge i was i was kind of biting my nails the whole way through because you're right you didn't know at what point i mean the guy was clearly a psychopath so you didn't yeah. know at what point it was going to turn on bonnet you knew it was going to happen at some point and which one of the other henchmen was going to catch him out and turn on him and who knew and who didn't so you were gripped every single point i think that was i think a lot of that is down to how well written the characters were and how it wasn't it didn't stray too far into the stupid or the comical yeah. and serve as a viewer. I think you're left with that kind of edge of the seat feeling. There was a sense of danger and foreboding right from the start of the film, that style of gun barrel music. Um, just right away you get this sense of fear. And, um, this, you know, the score, I think, added a lot to the drama in the film. Um, Michael Kamen used a lot, of, a lot of very quiet music and then just sort of sudden crescendos when there was scenes of high action and he just he i think um, a lot of the darkness in this is similar to some of the dark you think i don't know if you guys see much of the first one or two lethal weapon films but the darker bits in that you notice came in doing the same sort of so i think that i think um the different feel to the film and the darkness of the film the music's got a lot a lot to do with that and i like how there's even like sanchez almost his own little theme as well there's a wee kind of latino string sort of sound a couple of times when yeah. he appears there's a lot of small nice touches like that as well yeah 
Yeah, I completely agree. The comparisons to the Lethal Weapon films, I can completely see that. The, the sort of vibe of the film, especially in the first half, uh, I could see that. The action towards the end, it felt more like, it was starting to get more like that sort of Raiders or Terminator or something. But again, it was it fit the, the time of the film, 1989. Yeah. Uh, it, also, it also fit what was going on in the sense that you know, they were just trying to get away with some trucks. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that—that that was it. Like that's the reason I like that. I, I like the fact that the action centered around trucks full of drugs that they were trying to get away. Like I liked that. It was just—it was—it was like, yeah, I can I can buy that. Bonds like th- that's the kind of the setting there, isn't? It? <laughs> so it wasn't contrived. It was part. It was all part of the very tight plot. It was all leading up to that moment. It was great. And Bond, like, I mean, you could tell as well that when Bond, it led to the trucks because purely Bond kind of almost panicked, didn't he, and set the fire off in the facility. It didn't it's panic. Fine, yeah. So, but it, it, but it was understandable that he knew that his game was up, his number was up, like, the guy was about to reveal who he was, do you know what I mean? And he just had to create a distraction, and because of that, it led to the trucks. It didn't feel as if, it didn't feel like... A contrivance, does if that makes sense? It felt like everything just organically led to the next thing. Every single part of the movie, everything felt, except from one single bit. There was only one bit of the film that I felt strayed from that. I can mention it now if you want, or I can save it. We're talking about the the line with the the fact that she, as an ex CIA agent, saves him, or they save each other in a sense, and then they have the essentially go straight to it. Well, it was uh, it was the bit on the boat, yeah, when it was yeah. uh, where Pam had yes had got away. And it was the only bit that I felt was a contrivance or, or didn't make any sense in the sense that um, Bond was trying to get Pam. Pam is an ex CIA agent, Stephen Barry has said, who um, was uh, running her own thing. So she she had her own kind of mission that was ongoing. And um, was it Sanchez or Crest or someone was supposed to meet her? Was it Sanchez? Who was it that was? No, supposed it was to... lighter. Was meant lighter. to be because it was on. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was it's on his computer, wasn't it? Informed. Yeah. She was in danger because when yeah. you saw the the files of belong to lighter, every agent next to them said deceased, apart from yeah. Pam Bouvier. So I don't know if that's hinting that Sanchez had them killed in that short space of time. Quite. So quite she was possibly. in danger, or at least it just it how, how in danger she was. But this all basically led up to a point where we're bond met her, and then there was a. A kind of a life or death situation, a big fight, and Sanchez was more uh, sorry. Um, Pam was kind of more prepared for that than Bond was, and kind of almost sort of got him out of there, in a sense. Um, very much his equal in the at least probably more so, more capable than him in the situation. And then they're on this boat and they're getting away, and Bond wants to take her onto the next part of the mission, and he's trying to pay her, and they're haggling about the money. And Sanchez, up to this point, is very kind of action, you know kind of sarcastic to him, they're bickering together like with each other. And then in the middle of the haggling, it's as if <laughs> I mean I commented on the chat, it was like it was as if like haggling was her turn on or something like that. It's completely <laughs> ridiculous. Because the more they haggled, you could tell, you could see that she was and then she steps towards Bond and she wants to she kisses him, do you know what I mean? And then next you know they're, they're, that's that. Whereas I, I kind of felt like it moved on to the next scene with them where they were continuing to bicker and she was like, well, I'm just as capable as you, blah, blah, or whatever, right? And, and all this kind of thing's going on. I would have preferred to have had them get romantic the way they did later on. I, that bit on the boat didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, but it, it just mm-hmm. it just felt like, it, it felt like they were trying to make it very clear to the audience that she fancied Bond. 
Whereas they could have left that little bit out and it would have been just the same. Yeah. At the end, it would have been fine. I don't think yeah. it's taken away from her character or anything like that. I think she was the one who made the move. She's someone who gets what she wants, that kind of thing. But it just didn't make any sense in the scene. It just didn't. Also, yeah, because then he does sleep with the other, the, the mistress of Sanchez, Lupi. Uh-huh. So, I mean, not that anyone probably felt it, but they would probably feel a bit betrayed for her already when that happened. But yeah. We know that you know it, it would have probably ma- it would probably been fine then it'd been better actually if they hadn't obviously got together first for them to then do that and yeah. then for him to make that sort of decision that he does at the end when he sort of yeah you know, look he's kind of made a uh, sort of move on him but then realizes no he wants to go with which, which I thought was absolutely I thought that was one of the great bond scenes I, I really felt sorry for Pam at the end when she when she got upset and ran away down the stairs yeah. I mean I thought that was so well like. That was a fantastically written scene. It was so. That was well, good, yeah. It was I, I thought so well done, like you know, like an A plus to the writer for that, and and director and everybody there for that that whole sequence there. And I loved Q's involvement, where and again Q's line would have worked even better with Pam, where Q says, "Don't judge him too harshly." An agent has to do whatever they have to do. You know, if they hadn't been romantic before, it would have made more sense. Do you know what I mean? Q saying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But again, Pam Pam kind of almost had to she didn't sleep with the televangelist, but she seduced she, but there was such a different way. Like with the female agent, they didn't have to seduce she didn't have to seduce the televangelist. He just led her straight to the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was no like you could see how easy it would be for a female agent to like get information out of men. Do you know what I mean? They would just lead you right into the lair. <laughs> like <laughs> complete idiots <laughs> what was it he kept saying as well god bless you yeah. <laughs> he kept calling her child and yeah. it was like no one can disrupt our private meditation <laughs> yeah that, that's it's another a very 80s thing that's a very 80s thing the televangelist thing that's like a, a real kind yeah. of humour I love how the televangelist as a villain as well because those guys are genuinely bastards so setting one of those guys up in, as a Bond villain was actually a nice little touch yeah. It's the fact that he's so, like, yeah, it's the, it keeps on saying, God bless you, child, when he like, just takes the money from him. It's like, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like an idiot, basically. Yeah, it's kind of harmless in a sense. <laughs> like, aye, like, aye, definitely. Aye. It was clever, though. Sorry, I was going to say it was clever as well how he was kind of used as a front for Sanchez, you know, his money laundering, his TV yeah, yeah. adverts. It made the plot make sense in a sense, like the backdrop of the plot. Actually, you could see how that that again could be realistic in a way. Which again, I like that the film. Yeah, it sort of worked many levels. See, in in general, like I, I feel like I'm, I, I've got a list of the characters in the film in front of me right now. And that's what I'm kind of using. I'm going through it just so I remember who everybody is. But I feel like every single character in this entire film was kind of given their moment, basically, mm-hmm. like Money Penny. Even Money Penny's little scene where she's she's looking like she's not doing her work properly. She's worried about Bond. She's you know she's looking for information to see where he is. Do you know what I mean? And and she's going against on her. Rules, you know, I was a bit gutted to see her back behind her desk again because I thought from the previous film, obviously, we, last time we saw her, she was in uh, she was in Q branch behind that desk hunting down information. And I I thought that was a kind of gear change. I thought right, that's where we're going to see Money Penny from now on. So to see her back behind that exact same desk in that same office again, yeah. I've got to say I was slightly gutted at. Well, I, I would have preferred it, say, if Money Penny had maybe gone with Q. Q yes. involved, though, that's the thing. You know, it was thanks to her calling Q branch, I think that Q was able to help Bond. 
Yeah, it was again. Yeah, it was great, yeah. but. Her placement, I think she. I've, I would rather have seen her back out somewhere else rather than back behind that desk again. I kind of, I kind of think they had to. I reckon there was tough editorial choices to keep the film as tight as it was. I, I would have liked, <clears throat> I would have liked to have seen her there, but I feel like it would have messed it up with um, Pam and um, what's her name, Tal- Tal- uh, Loop, Loopy or Loop was it? Loopy. Yeah, they just call her like Loopy in the film. Would have been too many women in the scene, do you know what I mean? Because you would have had Pam yeah. get upset about Bond and then Money Penny get upset about Pam. And then, do you know, it would have turned into this big thing with all these women all crying over Bond, do you know what I mean? And it just would have, it wouldn't have been any good. But... Well, I th- that depends how they write Money Penny. They didn't have to play up that angle, though. They could have still wrote, wrote her as doing her job and just being... A friend. She, she's a, she was sympathetic. She was she was cared for Bond. I don't know. I think she's. I think it's been pretty clear that she's she's wanted Bond romantically for about twenty years at well, this point. True. <laughs> I, I suppose it, it was less clear on the later Moore films, but from the way they played the scene in Living Daylight, she can see that was a, there was flirting going on, especially on her side, yeah. uh, even more so actually. So maybe yeah, I can see your point there if they were to continue that. But I mean, yeah. look at the rest of the characters. I mean, um, M had a very small bit to play. But that was one of the best M scenes we had so far. I thought it was a bit. I, I, I had, the believability started to kind of creak for me a lot. That scene just Bond suddenly having it was kind of cool in a way, like the you know rogue agent stuff. But I, I, something about it, I don't know. It didn't work for me completely. I don't know if I'm just uh, I'm, I'm diff from everyone else here, but having him you know beat up the rest of the agents or whatever in the security just to escape and things seemed a bit much. Well, yeah. But I mean, M's perform yeah. the performance, the character there. M was more like um, Judy Dench's M. Oh yeah, like- yeah. The line that you mentioned as well, I did like that. Um, not it- here, you know. Stopping the guy from shooting. Oh yeah, yeah. And Gordon picked, pointed out like the you can't just resign. It's not a country club, like mm-hmm. that kind of that kind of thing as well. Like I mean, I don't know. I, I I'm a I, I'm a sucker for well written characters. I just love it. I, I you know every single person in this film. Yeah, I told. I was. I was going to say. Um, I don't know if Steve McCall. Um, how I was wondering how you enjoyed that scene with them after because you you're the only one that's actually visited Hemingway House where the that yeah. great scene with them was filmed. It was. It was so cool watching that again. It, it did take me right back because the place has barely changed. Apart from a few more trees, it's barely changed since 1989. I've recognised everything, um, and that kind of staircase that he walks up and stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun. Rewatching that again, it's, it was nice because I mean, when I was there, all I did was sort of pulls that little clip up on YouTube, and I didn't quite get a chance to get a grip on what the actual scene was. So seeing it in context made a lot more sense, which was useful. But yeah, yeah. it was fun to see that again, and all the cats. There genuinely is there's about fifty seven of them. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, is there anything more we want to talk about the in the relationship side of things with Pam? I feel like we've more or less started that route, so we should maybe. Well, I was going to say, um, I, I liked Pam in this film. I, I thought, um, I, I agree with what you say. It did seem a bit kind of contrived um, between her and Bond in the boat. I, I did. There was there was good chemistry there. I liked the whole thing with seventy five, eighty, ninety, not. But yeah, it did seem kind of contrived. I felt though. Um, Although I liked her in the film, she seemed very tough in that whole... The scene where Bond met her in the bar, there's a big barroom brawl. You've got the music, dirty love, and all that. And then they escape in the boat. And I feel after that scene, she became a bit more childish. Get, um, you know, yeah. Getting jealous of Bond, just kind yeah. of 
tagging along in some ways. Uh, she really helped him towards the end. You know, you could see her skills are obviously as a as a pilot. She was a she was a kind of freelance pilot. It was revealed there on the film, and she's um, her circling over bunnies in the tanker and on, on the plane um, is good. I, I thought she was really good. Yeah, it was just it was like as soon as she cut her hair, she just suddenly became a bit more childish. But I did like. I thought Lupe was good. I liked the whole. Again, I, she's like the sort of um, kept woman, but um, she helped Bond as well. Although you did kind of feel sorry for her in a sense as well, especially at the end because there was a line as well when she was. She was basically trying to seduce Bond and right back when Sanchez was the other side of the wall, pretty much in his own house. Um, but she said, Bond says, um, do you not want to go back home once all this is over? And she says, oh, I can't go back to that. I don't know if it's implying that, I don't know if she um, came from a tough upbringing or something like that. And at that point, you kind of yeah. feel sorry for her. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I really liked the writing for Pam. I thought it, it gave range to the character. Because with like all characters have weaknesses, do you know what I mean? And I, I feel like with Bond, for example, you see Bond is quite capable of falling in love like he did before, and he got married, and then he got hurt, and all that kind of thing. And and there's reactions to that. So there's a there's a vulnerability and a weakness for Bond there. I feel like I, I didn't at any point, apart from the bit on the boat, I didn't feel like it was unrealistic with Pam. And I was kind of pleased when it was revealed that she was running her own mission on the side because it kind of explained yeah. it a little bit. That's true, but I struggle to see, you're talking about weaknesses, I'm struggling to see what kind of Pam's weakness would be to the extent that she started to weaken really towards the end of the film. Because, I mean, I am mean, I am getting a bit fed up of having Bond girls towards the end of these films screaming, James, it happened in the last film as yeah. well. Yeah. And it just yeah. feels, it feels really, I mean, for, for someone who is, clearly a kick-ass character you saw her obviously the barroom brawl when she was introduced you know the fact that she's running her own mission she shouldn't as a personality if she was written properly i think be acting like that so i struggle to see it wasn't she sure to james her because weakness. he was about to be hit by a missile also that moment as well yeah. i thought she was trying to rescue him i thought she was shouting his it name. felt almost like i don't know maybe it was the way it was screamed or something but it, it felt almost as a kind of Come help me, save me, type help. Um, but no, it, you're right. There was there was a missile coming towards us, but he would have seen the missile coming towards him. You didn't need her screaming at him. Yeah, it's also as kind of slightly. As well as that, she's she's an experienced operative. The way that Dalton um, constantly ushered her around in the final act, it was like it was like a, a little, you know, that say I need to get her, save her, protect her at all times. But she should have been, you know, just as capable to run in a certain direction as he was, and not needed that same protection. Uh, also, see, the I thing can... that stood out to me was the line when she enters the room and he's hanging after Dario has been murdered. Um, you know, he's hanging from that conveyor belt, and obviously in a predicament. Like he's about to die, and she says, "Are you okay?" And he's like, "Turn that, that bloody machine off." <laughs> well, Jesus, the worst are you okay happened? in film history? Like, what the oh, hell happened in the writing yeah, there? Like, yeah. did they take a day off and they just was like the cleaner wrote that liner? <laughs> that, yeah, that was a little bit, little bit daft. I mean, you're never going to get, you're never going to get it to to be. It, it was yeah. done for comic effect. That's what it was. It was yeah. done to make him. That was a com- comedic part of the film, but it it, it does the, the detriment of making her completely stupid, unbelievable, and yeah. it sort of for me takes away from the film. I would rather that she just went in and switched it off. I didn't need that that comedic like absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah. 
well, that's, like that, that. that's the thing, yeah. It's all to do with it's all to do with choices, isn't it? It's like it's like someone's saying we need a laugh in this scene. We need to make it clear that she fancies Bond here. We need to make it clear that Bond's that, that someone's coming out the, the door with a missile. You know, so they're using whenever someone uses a character for exposition or for laughs or or anything like that. The, the quality dips it's always well, the it, it all depends on the context if that character has precedent for being that type of way well, and uh, it's done really well it's all about the context and for me this was a character that was established as a experienced professional uh self-assured so it suddenly because exactly. the, the bickering at the beginning was fantastic the the it's, back and forth that's my point my point is that they, they when they put the if you put a joke above the character you're losing the character do you see what i mean like that's that's exactly what you said is exactly what i'm yeah. trying to say like yeah, yeah. like the to play for a laugh they they lost us for a second do you know what i mean like it was a cheap laugh it, it didn't it didn't yeah do it for me yeah, because I noticed that with the one one liner in the film as well, seemingly, which again yeah. was kind of yeah. almost brushed past by Dot went in. It was was it the guy on the forklift truck? Uh-huh. Yeah. And she went, "Oh, what happened?" And he goes, "Oh, he he made a he hit a dead end dead or something end. like that." Yeah. And it almost felt like he didn't want to say it, and that kind of he just kind of mumbled it and moved past. But it was so obvious that the writers had to squeeze one of those one liners in, yeah. and they tried to squeeze it in there. And it just didn't work. It stood no. out like a sore thumb, and I thought, "Oh, that's 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 the one liner." Well, what so caused that's, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, what caused me pain, a, a pain, internal pain with Pam, I think, is that some of it was so well written, some of it was so good. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't know how to describe it. Like the scene at the end where Bond is kissing Lupe, and she sees it and she gets upset. It's fully believable because it's well written. Do you know what I mean? It's it's it, it, it's a payoff. Do you know what I mean? Bond has to make his choice, and it's it's believable. You know what I mean? Any any one of us would be upset if we saw our significant other kissing someone else. You know, you would go off and cl- go into a room and stand and think about it or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So it's fully believable. Um, but then obviously you've got other scenes with her that are just. I mean, there's only a couple. There's only a couple of small moments with her. Um, but the funny thing is with Lupe. Well, I feel like she. I was very pleased actually to see the scene with her and um, what's his face uh, Crest, like when Crest was drinking and he came in, and you could see the disdain dripping from Lupe in that scene, just like get out of my room, you drunk and all this, and she, you know what I mean? So she had there was a chance to see that she wasn't completely helpless all the time. Do you know what I mean? She she was quite capable yeah. of of saying, oh look, just leave me alone, get out of my room. Do you know what I mean? She wasn't afraid, you know. But- and she was at Stockholm Syndrome, I think she had with with Sanchez. What do you think of that? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. Because as, as Gordon pointed out, I think that, that line that suggested that she'd come from a tough upbringing or whatever, I've, I've spent 15 years getting away from home, I don't want to go back. You absolutely can see that she's latched on to the first man who could give her what she thought was some kind of protection. So uh-huh. absolutely, Stockholm Syndrome, I think, is spot on there. Well, she says a line exactly that, that summed it up where Bond says to her, who whipped you? And she says, it was Sanchez. And he says, oh, God, why did he do that? And he's like, it was, she says, it's my, it was my fault because I made him angry. Right? Yes, yes. So that's like straight down the line, Stockholm Syndrome right there, isn't it? Like she blames Absolutely. herself. For the what fact that the film yeah. even had a flogging scene in it, that was the start, wasn't it? When it just was yeah. like telling you. Uh, yeah, this is a different, this is a, this is an 18 or 15, you know, this is a much different yeah. vibe. Uh, yeah, I mean, Lupe, I thought was, uh, was, it was fine. I thought her character was mostly, you know, it was played really well. It was necessary for the plot to show you 
the villainy, the different types of villainy that Sanchez portrayed, um, the way he treats her and things like, and kind of uses her as well. Uh-huh. But also, I, I didn't think that <laughs> she sleeps with Bond, right? Does she not really think that Sanchez would find out? I mean, I, I don't know. It, I suppose they didn't really come into it in the end, but it, it just seemed baffling that she would even do that, considering the type of guy that Sanchez is with all these goons walking around the area. I think she thinks at that point that Bond is... It's like McCall said about her going for powerful men, right? So she goes for Sanchez because she needs rescued from her bad background. Yeah, true. She goes for yeah. Bond because she needs rescuing from Sanchez. And then yep. as soon as Bond, Bond goes for um, Pam... She's basically takes the president away. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know I mean, like, so, but Bond suggests it. Yeah, but I mean, like, she's she's someone who is basically kind of uses men as a survival tactic in a sense. Like, that's that's what she's doing. She's she's looking at men as a. I don't think it's a negative. I, I think she's she's someone who's had to survive in South America. Do you know what I mean? And it's difficult. And I think that a lot of women maybe have to try and do that down there. Like they. They kind of find a strong man, someone who, uh, but but in some cases, as happened with Lupe, they can be worse than what they left behind. Do you know what I mean? It's interesting. It's interesting also the way that I, I really enjoyed in Benicio del Toro as as Dario and the way that he floats out the film for like basically most of the mid part. And um, the whole thing is, if he'd suddenly appeared around Sanchez when Bond was because Bond was was posing uh, well, he was. Um, he was not. He was not. He was trying to make it not look as though he was a pal of lighters and make himself believable to Sanchez. But um, if Dario had seen him at any minute, he was a recognizing. So Dario doesn't actually appear. He floats back into the film towards the end at Sanchez's big uh, drug complex, and um, that you get there's such tension when he appears. About I thought Dario is just um, he's one of the nastiest henchmen in the whole. Bond season. He's um he's possibly in like the darkest scene I've ever seen in a Bond film. At the very start, you'd imagine it's him. You don't actually see Lighter's wife getting killed, but it's that line when Lighter says, "Where's my wife?" and he says, "Don't worry." He says, "We gave her a nice honeymoon." It's just it's that's as about as dark as Bond gets. We, we gave well, her a nice like, honeymoon. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's as, great, isn't it? Well, yeah. I don't know. I never thought. I thought maybe even you know just. Even a kill, but the the other you could say arguably that's the darkest part of the film, or even just the part where you just see Bond finds Lighter's wife dead. You know that to me that's as dark as the Double O Seven series gets, and Dario as well. You know you see the the hate in his eyes. He's got this, his his face is covered in blood. He's got this bloodshot eye. He's trying to kind of force Bond in, into the the big sort of um, drug crushing machine and he spits at Bondy, you know, he fucking spits at him. You know, that's about that's I know, sorry, I'm I'm not I sound quite nasty the way I'm saying it, but um the hate he has for Bond, he actually has to spit at him. You've never actually seen uh a Bond henchman do that. And that, you know, it's is it's um parts like that which probably give it a certificate as well as those occasional swearing. It's it's a real dark film. Um, well, I mean, yeah, well, that's what I said. Enemies are, I mean, people get their legs bitten off. You get people who literally are exploded inside pressure chamber. Um, you've yeah, got... That um, was gruesome. I mean, you've got uh, uh, Dario, the aforementioned Dario, cr- slowly crushed or, or pulverized from the feet up in a, a uh, in the most horrendous manner. Um, in a mist of coke and blood. Just Yeah. I mean, just... I mean, it was... It did not. 
I, I, weirdly enough, I don't think it went overboard with it. I feel like it was it was it was right on the line, you know. It was right on that line when it was it was becoming a horror film for a few seconds. Do you know what I mean? Because I mean, th- those are two of the worst deaths imaginable, aren't they? Oh, in fact, where well, you've got burning alive as well, as we see. That's true. The great thing about that as well was that <laughs> Sanchez was killed by his own drugs essentially, because the gasoline was was basically San, uh, Sanchez's cocaine been dissolved for transportation elsewhere. And this whole set, of, uh, this chain of events that Bond caused resulted in the tankers blowing up. The explosion from the tanker and Bond using lighter's lighter, essentially the gift he got from Felix at the wedding, to, to um, set Sanchez on fire because he's doused in gasoline. He was essentially killed by his own product. He was, that was his, his own drugs were his own downfall. So it was quite a, it was a good ending, although it was really brief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, really dark film. Uh, from all the the, the different types of murder, uh, Felix Leiter, a character we've known since what film one, I think. Suddenly, uh, obviously, one, the, yeah, yeah uh, you know, it was David Edison again. It was the same actor from Love and Light Die. He'd he'd not been in it for several films, and it, obviously, a, an older David Edison. Yeah, was, but he was good. I thought. Mm-hmm. It was great to see Bond. It felt like a, a sort of, again, it was that 80s feel. It felt like those 80s action buddy cop films. The way that Lighter and Bond together going on a mission on, on, on Lighter's wedding day and things like that. It, it did feel that was the, the, that's where the lethal weapon feel from the film came. Uh, yeah. I quite liked that. It felt, it was weird. It was just weird seeing Bond suddenly not being the center of the attention. It was actually Felix's day and Bond's just a bit part player in his day. Uh, best man, I suppose. Uh, although yeah. worst best man if he leads him into a mission, I suppose. Uh, it was also <laughs> the way um, the way that Lighter, he was kind of the architect of his own downfall in a, in a very sad and dark way in that he was so obsessed with his work that he would still work in his own wedding day and it resulted in his own wife being killed on his wedding day. You know, it's very really, sad the way it works. It was really dark, yeah. yeah some... he, if him and Bond hadn't got involved in that, and I loved as well, just, and this is more of the light side of the film, how Bond just, he's got nothing, he shouldn't be involved with the CIA or the DEA, but he just goes along anyway, and he's shooting at Sanchez's people. You know, I like that. And it, So there's a lot of light and dark in this film. I mean, you know, the, the whole idea, I love, it's kind of classic Bond, the way they, they both leap down the parachutes into the wedding. And and throughout all this conflict, the two of them are wearing their wedding suits as well. You know, that's one of the, although it's a different Bond film, that's one of the classic Bond touches getting in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of classic Bond touches, some gadgets were obviously introduced with the Q scene. I uh, am disappointed, I must say, that the explosive alarm clock was not used. (laughs) (laughs) There was so much potential for that. Yeah. The dentonite toothpaste was used, though, which was good. I love as well, Q's so protective over his gadgets, because I like the scene in the hotel room. He's he's uh, meeting Pam and Bond, and he's, he's giving Bond a mini briefing in the hotel room, and Pam messes around with the camera and almost catches one of them with a laser. He's like, stop messing around. You know, you see that with him towards Bond, even in some of the Connery films. He's so protective over his own stuff. That's like his domain. No one can... Well, to be fair, they are incredibly dangerous. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's saving them as well. Absolutely uh, expensive. I think as well, um, you got to see Q being protective over Bond or having this kind of care for Bond. I found there was one little scene I found quite, quite. It was almost quite a touching scene from Q where 
Pam says something to like they're waiting on Bond coming back and Pam says something like, Oh, you know, where is he? And Q's like, Don't worry, 007 always comes back. So he's got like, yeah. like so but you can tell that Q's concerned that they're they're both waiting for him, you know? I love uh, how Bond and Q had to sleep in the same hotel room as well, because Pam takes the half and Bond says oh, I hope you don't <laughs> snore. You just wonder what, like, did they go straight to bed or, like, or did did did, did kind of rant there in the dark for about half an hour when Bond's trying to get to sleep? I'd love to be a fly in the wall just to see what. I feel happened. like your 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 fan fiction's taking a weird turn. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you not think though? Just you know what Q's like? Would would they just um just switch off straight away or would probably you know, would Q they just, talk about the Q lab yeah. or Q's probably got a gadget you can use. That would uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In, instant sleep bond. Calls Q was absolutely brilliant in this in this film. I have to say, I've, I think of all of them, this is probably the favourite Q moments. Um, I mean that that scene was you saw kind of undercover almost as a, a road sweeper with a fake moustache. Yeah. I mean that properly made me. I don't think it was supposed to be comedic, but that made me laugh. Yeah, and yeah. just I mean his actual his disappointment when he was told to go home, and then the utter delight when he was then asked to stay on and do something else. That oh yes, at once, whatever. Yeah. It was it was he was absolutely brilliant in this film. Absolutely yeah, really. lighted it up. Yeah, really enjoyed it. I think that was yeah he brought some of the levity that some where the the film might have got a little too dark for some. There was a kind of classic yeah. one feel that he brought back. So there was that balance overall, which I absolutely see that. Like it was, there was a, there was a scene where Q was driving Bond in the car somewhere and Bond got out, but they'd been followed or something like that. And I was thinking, oh shit, is Q going to get it here? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, he doesn't, but like yeah. at the time I could imagine, like, cause he's such a lovable, almost grandfatherly like character at this point. The thought of something happening to Q is just unthinkable, isn't it? It's, it's more devastating than the thought of something happening to Bond. He kind of did the same thing in Octopus. He acted as a field agent and he happily put himself in harm's way. If you think of that scene with VJ and Octopus getting killed on the, the shore. Another similarity, I don't know, so Bond actually quit MI6 in this film. Can you guys remember there was one other previous film where he quit MI6 or he tried to quit MI6? Well, the one that uh, Money Penny ended up Pretending that she had put Talk through the Aye. Aye. It's a two-week holiday. Uh, it'll be... It's not. That's I'm annoying. Trying, oh, it's no, a Roger Moore film. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, that bit. I, I love the way that Bond... One of the real strengths of the film is the way Bond... Because he, he did this at least once in the novels. He was prepared to disobey orders. He was. It's kind of like, I don't know how much you've seen 24 and you know Kiefer Sutherland is Jack Bauer but he he's relentless like every single series he is going against orders and it's uh, it's for the greater good and I think Bond's doing that as well he sees the greater good but he's his judgment's a bit clouded because it was his friend's wife that was killed but um, I loved it's good just for that you know the whole change up thing to see Bond rather than being on a falling orders him doing his own mission and it's the whole way that he uses Sanchez's own money because he gets all those millions of pounds of notes in that plane of drug money and he uses that to fund his mission and he uses Sanchez's own money to bring Sanchez down. It's just, it's um, it's so cleverly done. And, Bond, and he's, it's like one man, or he gets Pam involved, so it's like two against, as she puts, an entire army. It's uh, I just love the way it's done. 
Yeah, it gives you that feeling of Bond really is on his own this time. He doesn't have the support of MI6, which, yeah, I quite like that. Um, two seconds, guys. My phone says it's got 15% battery, so I'm worried it's going to cut out. Cut out completely. See, in the, I don't know if you remember the bit in the boat when Bond first sees Loopy. He, um, this is where Dalton's potential is darkest, or Bond's is darkest in the entire series. He puts a knife up to her neck, and you just see the burning rage in his eyes because he wants to find Sanchez. He, he's, his emotions are raw from finding Della's body. And uh, but and the fact um, that Archie was just killed as well. I see the rage in his eyes. He, he, find, he, he immediately goes out onto the deck of the boat and he says, compliments of Sharky, and he puts the uh, harpoon through the guy, dives into the water, just the burning rage in his eyes. When he walks into Lupe's room, the music is it's like one by Metallica. It's this weird kind of Latino sort of guitar line. But then, uh, and then he um, he notices that she's been whipped as well. And I don't know. You remember you saw Sanchez at the start of the film whipping her. I've heard people say he uses the tail of his iguana. I, it was hard to see. I think he might have, but it's kind of a weird. Concept. I don't think the iguana would survive that. I know. I, do their tails not? Um, no, they are. They are an iguana. It's it's their um, camouflage. That's their main sort of feature, isn't it? Or is there something about do their tails not grow grow or something? If they, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, I'm intrigued now to go back and see if it was because he did pick up something weird to whip her with, and I, I, I thought it was like a vine or something like that. But if it was an iguana, that that adds an extra layer of. Sort of, if you add animal cruelty into a villain, you know you're getting badass. You're getting a, a proper bastard. So that would have been interesting <laughs> if that if that was. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, no, I don't think it could have been. But I think it's just one of these sort of rumors that that goes around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just a few other things then to tick off before we get to the rating. There was a couple of fantastic shots in this film that I just liked from a cinematography point of view because I think that kind of was a bit more understated because there was so much going on, action and things like that. But there was there were scenes with like the aquarium. It was a panning shot that I really liked. Um, the underwater sequences reminded me of Thunderball, uh, naturally, which which again I quite liked. Um, there was kind of a, maybe it was an homage to that. that you can maybe, if, I don't know if you guys have, like, like some of the stuff there. Yeah, well, I, I thought that... Yeah. There was a scene, the scene with the the big kind of the televangelist's place, the big plant blown up, just looked incredible. I mean, that was and it looked like it was a full scale sized place that was exploding. I mean, it didn't look, it looked incredible. Mm-hmm. It was the shots of those people all running away, trying to get away from it, and how far away it was, and how massive it was, and all these explosions was just insane. There was a lot of nice shots of. Like when Loopy went in the speedboat and was trying to get away from the island and stuff, like you could see like the speedboat going off towards the city. You know, just just ni- nice kind of. There was there, there was and and at the Heming the Hemingway house as well. That was nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah location shots and landscape shots, I think, were really well done in this. Uh, Particularly, it was a very sort of, it was a very scenic film, yeah, which yeah. is what you kind of need for South America. But it it looked fantastic. I absolutely agree on that. And yeah. what was cool was that they were using they didn't they didn't have to go all over the world to get great shots like they they kind of they managed to get great shots out of the places they that, that suited the story you know yeah which worked for me yeah you know uh, a lot of things low key in the film but um yeah like you said it's the plot's kind of simple but effective but believable 
And the cinematography, yeah, you can't argue with that. It's it's, it's great, and it's a very colourful film. Literally, very colourful. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to talk about before we get to the rating? I don't know if we've touched much on the the music and the score. And I felt, I mean, it from the very start of the the pre-title sequence and the the score and the music that was used throughout that instantly felt very different. And I'm not sure. I mean, it was it was good for most of the film. There were parts where I felt it felt just a little bit on the kind of comedic sides. Um, there was a shot, I think, of, I can't remember what scene it was, but Bond was kind of creeping through somewhere, and that accompanying music felt a little bit, it kind of harked back to the slightly less appropriate comedic music that we've pointed out before. I mean, for the most part, the film was actually, the score-wise, was absolutely fine. Um, and as you've pointed out, some of the darker moments, it was really, really good. But I, I don't know, there was something about it. Um, obviously, bringing in a new composer, there's gonna they're going to put their own stamp on it. Some parts didn't quite, do it for me. That might just have been me, but it felt a little bit mm. odd on occasion. I don't know if you maybe mean the music at the end credits as well, Steve. The end credits, I like the music in the film, but the end credits music, nah, that that's inappropriate. And I feel I it's another one of these films. Yeah. Again, they should have just played a, a decent version of the Bond theme over the end credits because there was a good bit of it in the film, but that end song, it's like the one at the end of Goldeneye. It's a bit of a ridiculous song. To be honest, the end credits music never bothers me because that point the film was done, so it doesn't really. I yeah. never really get upset about that. I, I think I agree with Steve. There are there are moments where there's a lightheartedness that comes through after you've maybe seen some really horrific stuff, and it, it's just a slight tonal inconsistency. Yeah, the points I like. We haven't actually. We'll get to this. Actually, we haven't even discussed the main theme for the film License to Kill by Gladys Knight. Uh, but Michael Kamen's score, I thought overall was good. It, it had a again. I keep using lethal weapon as a, it felt like a lethal weapon sort of vibe. Um, I, I'm guessing that's maybe what he was going for. Yeah, I, I take it that was a deliberate decision there. I take it the makers of the film knew what they were going to be up against releasing the film in summer of '89. They knew they were up against your Batman and particularly Lethal Weapon too. So that yeah. would explain. I presume that is the reasoning behind some of the scoring and the action scenes, particularly. They obviously had the competition in mind. Yeah, like I don't remember seeing so many machine guns in Bond really up until A View to a Kill was the first and that was yeah. what, mid-80s? So they've only sort of, those Terminator, I was, Terminator came out 84 and uh, Terminator 2 at this point hadn't come out yet but the the sort of, the action films, that Die Hard and I think was 88, so there was there was these kind of uh, sort of mad action films that came out with machine guns and things like that if, yeah, uh, do you mean until Zorin went his his mad yeah, rampage and the line at the end of the view to kill his gunning down his own men and laughing? That felt like the first. That felt I know because I know that it sort of arced Roger Moore when he saw it, um, because he believed that that wasn't Bond. A Bond film was a bit cla- a Bond villain especially was a bit classier in a sense, so it kind of went against what he felt. But so it, I don't know how if how he felt about License to Kill, but I imagined a lot of Bond purists at the time we're turned off by some of the that tonal change the villains are just you know mass murdering machine gun uzi loving fanaticists and things like that and the sort of lights you'd see in your diehards and things like that well uh, a drug dealing psychopath is i reckon i mean we know what they were doing do you know what i mean that it, is, worked, it worked was... for this film I, I liked it that's what i'm saying i liked it but i think there's some because it's just so different from your strombergs and your uh, blowfelds and things like that 
it is it is quite a stark contrast. Yeah, it was a modernization that had to happen. I don't think you could have released yeah, a film like the Brosnan coming up. Yeah. And that's why when I was watching this, I could see the breath of Goldeneye being born. Like I felt like I could see where all of what led six years later, you could see why Goldeneye existed the way it was. So yeah, so I, that was partially also a piece of enjoyment for me. Right. You yep. see, uh, you were going to talk about the opening song, Steve. Yeah, of course. I can't believe it's this long. It's an hour in. We haven't spoken about that. Well, I, I think that opening song had the best opening and ending. Like it had a great opening and ending to the song, like that kind of do do, like that kind of classic. Like I love that, that 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 sort of um, the way it opens up. It's very strong. I feel like the whole kind of middle of the song was a bit boring, but yeah. the end was great as well. So I, I kind of and I wish that that motif had been used more in the movie. I was expecting that. I was expecting to hear that more because that's Maybe they thought classic Bond sound, you know. Maybe they thought give it too much of a Goldfinger feel because the there's a it's similar to Goldfinger. I think Steve Barry was the first one to point this out in our music of Bond podcast. Maybe that's why they or it could have been there could have been various reasons. It might have been Michael Kamen's choice. Yeah. Well I mean I I, I don't know. Sorry, I'll be yawning there. I like, I thought um yeah, I did think it was yeah. I want to say it was a slight letdown because when the, the the first notes came on, I thought, "Here we go, this is going to be great," and then it, it didn't really do anything. And but then, thankfully, it had those notes at the end as well with the the song. So it was all right. It was okay. Uh, you wonder if you watch it more, does it stick? Certain ones you watch a few times, they start to become a bit more memorable. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I, I this is a, yeah. This is the last one that Morris Binder, the guy who's done the title screens for all this, all sixteen films. This was his last film before he died a couple of years later. Uh, another one of the the crew that essentially was there from the beginning. Morris Binder's the one that he he established the the Bond title screens. He was the guy that did directed all the every single one of the the title screen while it was while the music was playing and established that style that Bond silhouetted woman in guns style. So yeah. this is the last of his. Obviously, his legacy continued. Um, okay. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm all, I think I've covered everything I would want to cover. Cool. I, yeah. I'm curious to see what you all give us. <laughs> yeah, One. and we can, we can do maybe a brief Dalton retrospective out of the two films. Possibly, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we can do a uh, imitation section or whatever, because I don't know if there's really a lot to go on with Dalton. <laughs> uh, one thing I would say um, is you could pick out his Welsh accent. Um, well, look at the lights as well as a few times. His North Wales cold if I'm honest, If I'm honest, I didn't pick up. Uh, I honestly, before Fran texted in the WhatsApp group how much similar he sounded to Sean Bean, I had thought that during The Living Daylights. I thought, I'm just hearing Sean Bean's voice. I'm just hearing 006. It's yeah. kind of weird. Trave- this is the, it's actually Trevelyan that we're watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the, the prequel to Goldeneye and then... Or yeah. or, or um, Dalton's Bond was reassigned to the Trevelyan identity like after his terrible like uh, going off the rails and then he went even further off the rails became like part of Janice and all that. But, oh, yeah. I can't I can't believe that, that film is next. That's it's, that's insane. What is it, Sunday or tomorrow? What day is it? Sunday? No, it's a week. 
Well, so are we? Well, I I don't know. I don't know how. We, I don't know. Gonna... Yeah, I don't know how we'll we'll talk about it in a bit. But yeah, I don't know how we'll do that as part of the podcasts. I'm not sure. Are you talking about um, Pierce's live commentary thing? I think what happens is with that is people send in questions beforehand, and while you're watching the film live in YouTube or Amazon or whatever, he does a commentary and he answers the questions. So it's not it's not like you can talk to him live, but it should be even if you guys aren't doing it, I might just watch it anyway, and then I could always rewatch the film. But that should be quite interesting. Gordon, I have to say, I love the fact that you're like the way you talk about the Bond actors. It's like they're your mates that you know down the pub. Hi, Piercy. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Timmy D. Big Rosh. Hi, Big Tam and Timmy D. Play pool with them down the pub or something like that. Yeah, I wish there was a a woman from my work who um, was in a restaurant in Edinburgh last year. Was right next to Brosnan, and. Yeah, I mean that that's you don't feel um there's really any chance of ever meeting these guys. It's obviously Rogers now passed and then um you know Sean Connery's been in he's been in the Bahamas for decades and it'd be great it would be great to meet any of them. It's got it's gotta happen, one of them surely. Quick trivia before we start the rating, Gordon. Did you know that uh, Pedro Armendariz Jr. was in this film? He is the Yes. Yeah, yeah. The son of uh in from Russia with Love, Kieran Bays, uh the actor that played oh, Kieran Bay, the guy the guy that uh he died during the filming. He was diagnosed with cancer during the filming. Yeah. And obviously they rushed his scenes to get them finished for him. But his son was in this one. He played President Hector Lopez, the president of Eastmouth. What I noticed about that was it showed just how powerful Sanchez was. First there's lines alluding to the fact that he controls the police and most of these South American countries, no one can touch him. But the, the president of this, I think it's this pretend country, where this pretend city yeah. is, Miss City is, he comes into the office and Sanchez is telling him what to do and he's the damn president. It just shows how powerful he is. He seems scared of Sanchez. It's Again. not unheard of. Yeah. at all. Yeah, that's Pablo Escobar right there. Right, okay, I think we are good to move on to the rating then. Steve, you want to go first with this one? Uh, yeah, I will actually. And this is going to be an exceptionally high one. This is this for me is a very high four and a half, almost yeah. verging on a five. Um, but I'm going to stick with I'm going to stick with four and a half. Basically, I mean this this is the sequel to Honor Majesties that I think I've been waiting for for God knows how many films. Bond with a vengeance, out to get revenge, being a bastard, knocking everything out of his way. I absolutely love this. The action was bright. I just, it was a very, I like the fact it was a straightforward plot. It was a gripping plot. It had me edging my seat the whole way through. I didn't lose interest once. The characters, as we've talked about, have some proper depth. You had a backstory for pretty much everyone. Um, the villains in particular, very believable. Sanchez was excellent i really really enjoyed his performance as a villain i mean the action particularly towards the end was it got ridiculous the tanker on one side all of the explosions but i think you have to keep in mind it was the 80s end of the 80s it was the era of 80s action films they kind of had to to kind of keep up with the times the the end that last scene 
with Bond and Sanchez, where he just shows Sanchez the lighter for that couple of seconds before setting him alight. And you see the relief on Bond's face afterwards. That almost He almost breaks down in tears as he's going, oh my God, I've done it, that's it. That scene was... I, I, I was fist-pumping the air. That was brilliant. <laughs> the only minor downsides to me are Pam's character, particularly towards the end, I think weakened unnecessarily. She was such a strong character. I don't think particularly the scene on the boat as well, I should probably add the haggling scene that we've been talking about, was just unnecessary. Again, as I've, as I find myself frequently saying, it's not down to the actress, it's down to the writing. And there were a few minor musical points I kind of disagreed with. But overall, this for me is an incredibly strong four and a half out of five. Okay, Fran, what was your thoughts on this film? Well, I think I'm going to have to go for the five for it, because... A five-star film is is not an indication that the film is perfect. I think it's a it's an indication that it's about as close to that as as they could conceivably have gotten at the time. Um, and I feel like, I mean, I have I have similar reservations to Steve and what he said there. I think I picked out a couple. Like we kind of picked out some similar moments with characterization. I think Stephen Barry, you mentioned something about humor with Pam's character as well. So there's there's a few points uh, where it where it wasn't. But it was it was so far ahead of anything we've seen already, and and it, I, I I'm not sure how many of them have I given a five to so far because I know that I gave Honor Majesties a five. I think that's the only one. Yeah, and Honor Majesties had had similarly sort of believable writing. Um, it had that counterpart for Bond, uh, which was better than this film actually in a lot of ways. It was was better written. But I, I, I do feel like it got about as far as it could possibly get in terms of addressing a lot of the things that, that I personally found to be quite irritating about Bond films so far. I'm trying to think. There was there was something else I was going to say. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember, to be honest. Like, but yeah, um, I've probably was covered it. That, was, it was, was that an issue with the film, you mean? Or No, I think it's, prob- it's probably something I've covered in the... the like, just to, as we've discussed it through the podcast anyway. But yeah, overall, I'd say... Um, I'd give it a five star. Uh, oh, I know what it was. I know what I was going to say. I know what I was going to say. It went out of my head. It was the link between this and Honor Majesties, like Stephen right. Collins said. I reckon, see if you rejigged the plot slightly and you picked a... Let's say that you took out the Felix Slater and his wife bit, right? And you picked this up straight from Honor Majesties and Bond was out for revenge because of his wife's death. Yeah? And then he meets Pam and he's not ready to fall for someone new yet and she's frustrated and she wants him. And then he, he does it for the mission. With with uh, Lupe, and then you have the ending with Pam. All of that would would have flowed so perfectly together as two films. It would have been it would have been absolutely incredible, actually, um, if if you'd had this slightly rejigged as the sequel to Honor, Honor Majesties, because yep. And I, and, I, and I have to say that I, I, uh, Dalton must have watched Honor Majesties before this. He must have done. He must. He, he had to have done as part of his pre- preparation. Well, he certainly studied the books because he based um he really studied the original character from the books and the and when you think about it, that book was very similar to the film. Yeah. I, I thought it was I thought it was basically outstanding, couple of small moments, but yeah, five stars. Excellent. Gordon, you wanna go next then? Yeah. Um I think there's as a fan anyway, there's a distinction between a favourite Bond film and the best Bond film. You know, you could maybe say the likes of Majesties is the best in a way, but then there's my favourites, and this is definitely one of my favourites. And it's it's a true Fleming story. 
in a lot of ways there's like I said it's it's an anomaly in the Bond catalogue it's very different um, the soundtrack general feel of an 80s action movie much darker but still a true flaming story I, I love the, the vengeance angle I love Dalton is is brilliant I don't know if any of the other actors could have portrayed that that rage that he's so upset at you know the whole lighter episode and I feel that I, I guess a sense of um, fear watching the film in that way it's like the I, I really enjoyed Loving Daylights but it to work, especially the second half I feel a bit too comfortable this film makes me uncomfortable if you you get what I mean there's just right from the opening gun barrel there's danger Bond you know infiltrating Sanchez's organisation taking him down from the inside a more realistic plot there's even despite the the differences that make this film a real anomaly in, in the Bond catalogue there's still classic Bond moments there's um, you know that wedding at the start Bond, you know, diving down, great stunt work, diving down at Sanchez's plane with his wedding suit on. Um, even when they go into the wedding, you even notice there's a bullet hole in one of the hats. And, you know, Bond doing the barefoot <laughs> water skiing, which was incredible stunt work. I, that's classic Bond. The Bond in the casino, wearing the, the dicky bow and all that. I, and I really, one of the best scenes, which we haven't mentioned, was also Bond killing Killifer, who was, he was the CIA agent, the insider that helped Sanchez break free. The the rage, again, the rage in Dalton's eyes, just throwing the money at him. He's happily to waste the millions of pounds to see this guy get his comeuppance. It's, it's so good. It's a, it's a film I'm, I'm always returned to. I mean, I'll tell you something, right? So I'll, I'm going to give it a four out of five and it's, I rate it very highly. I would say it's the diff, it's because there's so it feels very different that that almost takes off an entire star for me because there's there's uh, there is a lot of classic Bond elements that are missing, and I feel as well. Um, I keep saying that it's it was John Glenn again that directed it, and you think John Glenn's the director that did Fear Eyes Only and Octopus, and there the contrast trust between this film and that stark. So I mean, it blows my mind he's the director. And you know, and, and this is another thing that really, really irritates me. Right at the end, um, Lighter's life has been turned upside down. His wife's been killed. He's um, yeah. he's lost half his leg. Bond phones him up in the hospital. He seems really jolly. He's talking about going a fishing trip with Bond. And it seems this can't be more than a week after this whole thing happened. He seems a bit, at the end, he seems too happy. And that that's right at the Gordon, end. That's Gordon, because... quite a bit for me. It's because he was on morphine. Yeah, <laughs> he was. He didn't know what he was saying. He was. Uh, he was on morphine. There we go. <laughs> there That's we even go. more tragic. Right, right. Yeah, I'll give it a five then. No, um, yeah, that's <laughs> a <problem>. <laughs> <laughs> See, and this honestly, uh, this um, this is not really so much a criticism because the film wasn't trying to be classic Bond. It was. It did what it said in the tin. Um, so the one the one star I would take off is just because it's so different. And I don't, so I don't, it's not um, really a weakness, if you know what I mean. It's doing what it's set out to do, but it's how can I possibly, the, the point is if I gave like from Russia with Love and Doctor No a four, how can I possibly give this a five? So it's kind of that. Again, it's maybe it's one I'll reevaluate, but I um, mean, it's, it's, like I said, it's one of my favourite Bond films, if not necessarily one of the best. Mm, interesting. What are the things that you'd say that make it 
the, the sort of the things, the classic Bond things that were missing that would have got it a five, do you think? I know that, uh, I get your argument though, that it probably needed to leave some things out to be the film yeah. it is. I think to live up to the a lot of the classic elements of the previous films, it, I think it needs that John Barry score. And you could see how well a Barry score worked with a Dalton film in The Living Daylights. I think that's part of the reason. I mm, think... Okay. I, th- I think there's it's just it, it's the sound it's, it's partly the soundtrack the and just the style of action and the just the, the general atmosphere it's it's kind of hard to pick maybe M needed a bit more screen time maybe we needed to see a bit of London maybe we need to see a bit of Bond's past maybe we needed to see Bond in the the Navy world I don't know there's maybe we need to see a bit of a, the Q lab <laughs> there's um. I feel there's something missing to make it. It just feels different, this film. And, it, you know, it's the same way, I suppose, Casino Royale probably feels different years later. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting hearing, it because from, from yourself, Gordon, we hear a, a Bond fan, whereas the rest of us are watching the films as, like, we like Bond, but we're not, like, super fans or anything like that. But I, I feel very much the same about there's things. All of us probably are fans of things that have changed with the times. And like a casual audience would probably be more receptive to that than than maybe we are. Like with Star Trek, Star Wars, like your various fran- Doctor Who, like your various franchises, there are people who who watch it from the sidelines and kind of dip in and out. Who are more far more positive about big changes, like to to those franchises. Whereas your fans, you get used to to the routine of it and the way like the the canon of it and the way things are. You know, so it's interesting to be on the other side of that. You know, because I'm not usually on there. I'm usually on yours. Like, I'm usually on where yeah. Gordon is with all the other franchises. I'm like, why are they changing this? Why are they doing that? But I, as a casual audience member, like, I can appreciate the changes, you know? I think it helps. I'm a, yeah, a big fan of that year of action movies in general because I'm a, a big diehard fan, a big Lethal Weapon yeah. fan, a big fan, you know, films like a lot of these buddy cop films from the 80s. And, you know, I may be saying these things about not being a classic film, but at the end of the day, I set this film on more than most of the other Bond movies. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree uh, pretty much with everyone's sentiment on this film. Thrilling, brutal and dark. And as Fran mentioned earlier, I think it did toe the line perfectly. I, was, I wasn't I was as a child able to distinguish two. I just knew it was a 15 and thought, hey cool, Bond's a 15, that's awesome. And essentially I just thought it was because of the shark. See, I always thought Lighter getting bitten by a shark was pretty dark. Rewatching this now it was so much more. There was, there was blood, much more blood than usual. Dalton's portrayal, I really like I think you take it seriously more when the actor takes it seriously and it's nothing to say against Roger Moore on because of that levity that he brought to the role but there is something to be said for when the actor playing the part and the writing material around him is much more serious you naturally take it a bit more seriously and I think I, I, I kind of gravitate to that style more the 90s and late 80s is more my era of action films the, the pacing in this film moved really quickly the film was like plot heavy let's move keep going but I liked that about it at the same time. The dialogue was punchy. It felt like a buddy 
comedy, uh, not a buddy comedy, but a sort of buddy action film. Some of the the cameos are you were seeing Sharky, I think, was played by the same guy that was in Last Action Hero, which I found hilarious because he was the mate, the chief that just kept on shouting at Arnold Schwarzenegger. There was um, the guy that played Balrog was the other guy that from Street Fighter. I don't know if anybody else noticed that. These were guys that I've seen in all the films that came out around then. That era of those films with so many actors jumping in and out of the film that I was like, oh my God, I loved that that actor and this and things like that. So yeah, I, I just really liked it. It was a fun action film and some of the the the, the craziness towards the end, yeah, did detract a little, got a bit slightly not it wasn't as grounded and believable, but again, it fitted the time. You can forgive it. And that's kind of what my sentiment for this that's that's how I feel about this film. There's a lot of things that it did where it was slightly some of the writing didn't quite work maybe for here and there for some of the uh, for Pam and things like that. But I was enjoying the film so much that I was able to give it a pass. And that's why I'm going to give it a five because it is not by any means a perfect film, as Fran said. It's how I feel about fives. They can still be flawed, but sure, I enjoyed this film a hell of a lot, even more so than The Living Daylights, I think. Uh, so because of that element of danger that you mentioned, Gordon, that this film had. And so, yeah, five stars for me. So that's uh, two fives, four and a half and a four. So Timothy Dalton has done well on the Bond Daft podcast. Yeah. Azira is is way too short. He needed at least another film or two, I would say. Um yeah. It's yep. uh, it's a shame that he never got that third Bond film, I think, to really cement the legacy. I, Absolutely. I, at least a trilogy of films would have been fantastic to see. I'd be interested to see what they would have done. Would they have continued even darker? Would the next film have been essentially uh, an eighteen and uh, who knows? It would have been really fascinating. Goldeneye is up next, though, which is which is exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. So yeah, it's this good is to, it. to hear as well. Sorry, man, I was just going to praise you guys because um, it's good to hear some open-minded views in Timothy Dalton. Some, uh, um, I mean, you guys are just kind of bang on everything you've said about both films and just some great points that a lot of people. I, w- I wouldn't say he's necessarily disliked, but he's kind of overlooked and ignored a lot of the time as Bond. And I think uh, when you've uh, only got two films, that's natural, because you've got the output of Roger Moore, seven films, Sean Connery, six plus the unofficial one, seven films, and then the, the next guy was two. I mean, him and Lazenby, were the, there's less to look at, but with Dalton having that second film, you know, both of them being... They were really well. I mean, this film came out at the time. I think it mostly got positive reviews. The only people that just didn't take to it were the people that found that it lost that classic bondness and that the dark tone was off-putting. But I think it's when it's aged better because, well, films have went crazier since then. That, that this is kind of nothing in comparison to the sort of types of films you can see being released in the last ten years or so. Yeah, yeah. And so the I mean, the Dalton here are very highly rated and. The Bondar podcast, like you said, great stuff. Well, I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I would have loved to have seen Adult in Goldeneye. Oh, yeah, you know what I mean? I think it would have been really interesting to see that. I almost feel like Dalton would have been maybe, would, would, would possibly maybe even have been better for Goldeneye. Um, it depends because Brosnan, there's one liners in Goldeneye, there's certain lines that he pulls off so right, well that Dalton really, really does not do well. <laughs> Well, I'm not saying, well, Goldeneye would have been different. 
the next yeah. one would have been different if Dalton was in it. You know what I mean? I, I think it may be that I might. I, I'm I'm not sure what to expect with you and Goldeneye after watching this. Whether I'm going to like Goldeneye more or less because of this. Do you know what I mean? Because of having seen such a, a good film that has uh, that kind of serious note. I was going to say I'm having the same thought. I've I've been because Goldeneye is kind of the one Bond film of them all that I'm actually relatively familiar with. It's the one I've been looking forward to most. <laughs> and now I've watched this immediately before it, I've gone, oh, shit. I don't know if I'm going to... Because I, I expected Goldeneye kind of to be my pinnacle to kind of what I'd base everything around. But this, I think it's going to be... I'm, 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 I have to kind of see them both side by side, but I think it is going to be such a shaker because you're right, Goldeneye is a much lighter, compared to this anyway, a much lighter film. And I've got so into the Dalton era, and I have, I mean, I've really, possibly of all the Bonds so far, enjoyed Dalton's Bond most. And I completely concur that you need at least another film or two out of him. Something maybe perhaps in between uh, License and GoldenEye. But it's it's going to be such a shake-up. The, just the seriousness and the brutalness of Dalton, I think... I didn't think I would, but I think I'm going to miss it once we see Pierce Brosnan. Once we get into the Brosnan area, I'll probably start enjoying it a bit more again, but I think I'm going to miss him. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not looking forward to... Uh, what I'm not looking forward to is the is the increasing silliness of the Brosnan era as it goes on. I know, I know. I'm, I'm not looking as forward to that. Yeah. Growing up, I never quite noticed it. It was only in reflection when I looked back and I realised his bond... Some of the stuff they did with those uh, last, well, really, it's really everything after Goldeneye. And Goldeneye, it's kinda, I think, well, you context, highlighted it, as well, yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, I agree with what you highlighted before. So you can actually see it, though, and that's kind of making it hard. But um, you highlighted that he didn't get given the, the best material to work with. So it wasn't really, I don't think, Brosnan that was. Oh, the no, problem. certainly not. It was more the, the screenplays. I think, yeah, they, they lose track. Of what maybe because obviously they did it in this film, but it was deliberate and there was a sense behind why they took out some elements. You know, it lost that we're not filming in the UK. It's all uh, there's no there was less M. There was less things that were classic Bond, but it worked for this film. This was a personal story. This was a revenge film. I was seeing the comparisons on on Wikipedia. I've not read Akira Kurosawa, but apparently it's there's a lot from that. Um, sort of gritty revenge tales and that that's what this film that's what this film worked and that's what it, the source material for that but i think with goldeneye they got the perfect mix for me anyway it's uh the modern action pace of the sort of 90s films with good characters as well and i think they they mixed in the personal story with trevallion and 006 and then also the megalomania style of the classic film so i feel like goldeneye is a best of for the modern age where it had everything before you get back to your gritty Casino Royale. Uh, so it's kind of what you prefer, but they only had it with Goldeneye. And I think, I, I suspect when we watch the, the three after that, we might see the sort of decline of the, the Brosnan films, the, the writing especially is the, I think the main culprit. But I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm open-minded. They're going to be fantastic five-star films, all four. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, you might, maybe, maybe, they get better as they go along and die another day's the pinnacle. There is a Bond film <laughs> for everyone, I think. There's got to be someone out there that just loves Die Another Day and it's better than all the others. I mean, bear in mind there are people who believe in Flat Earth and people who think that Bill Gates is planning the end of the world. So, <laughs> <laughs> Those all same right. people are the ones who like Die Another Day. That's how you can tell them apart. 
yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's probably like a graph somewhere that correlates like people who who believe or support certain things with liking shit, you know. <laughs> so yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to end this podcast. We will be returning for Goldeneye. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining me. It's been a hell of a hell of an episode, hell of a film. I'm looking forward to the next one. James Bond and the Bond Daft Podcast will return. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bless your heart. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>